This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, hey, guys. It's me, Lisa Bilyeu here with another banger episode of Women of Impact that will help you deal with narcissists in all situations, from the workplace and professional settings to your family, your friends, and yes, of course, romantic partners. And today I'm joined by the amazing, the world-renowned psychologist and narcissist expert and one of my close, close homies. She is back to help us avoid emotional entanglement with a narcissist so that you can take your power back. That's right, it's my girl, Dr. Ramani is in the house. And she's got even more wisdom to share from her 20 plus years of experience studying narcissists and working with narcissistic abuse survivors. With so much love and compassion, Dr. Ramani is giving us the advice we need, but might not actually want to hear when it comes to that narcissist in our lives. Now guys, we dig into why you want to explain and defend yourself to the narcissist, but never, ever, ever should you. We also talk about something called soul distancing. We also talk about the counterintuitive ways to take your power back and end it with a narcissist for good. And finally, Dr. Ramani explains why we must, must disengage with the narcissist, especially when they are playing the victim. Yes, it is true, the narcissist will also play that trick and that game. So this episode will arm you with the strategies you need to come out of each encounter without losing yourself. Guys, I'm Lisa Billu, and I do these episodes and I show up every day so that we women can start to take our power back with either people around us or situations. And so this episode, if you can't, if you're finding it hard to stand up for yourself, to protect yourself from someone that's completely and utterly toxic, then homie, this episode is for you. If we're in a manipulative, toxic or narcissistic relationship and we want to protect ourselves, stand up for ourselves and gain what you call effed up resilience, what can we say and do to put them in their place? One of the tactics I talk about in my new book and something I've talked about even long before this book is this idea of not going deep, okay? And deep stands for defend, engage, explain and personalize. And I tell people, don't go deep. Don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, don't personalize. The best thing you can do is not get into it with them, right? You just don't play. And when you don't play, you're not going to get pulled into their madness, really. And because you can't win at it. And it's hard, though. You and I have talked about this on your show before. You, would, I remember so well what you said because it stuck with me, which is this idea of, when I said don't defend, you're like, but what if you know you're in the right? Like, I don't like the idea of not saying something. It goes against the grain of who I am. But I thought you raised a really important point, which is in some people's nature is that 
they can't not defend. Like if they really believe something's right, they're going to take the fight. To which I say, then you need to understand what you're getting into. So if you don't understand what narcissism is, you don't understand what this is going to look like, you don't understand gaslighting or any of that, you're going to get eaten alive. But if you know that's what's coming at you, right? It's almost like you understand the weaponry that's going to be headed towards you. You can then create, in essence, the defense. But it's the not defending is something very active you can do because they're accusing you of something that's wrong. That's the core of gaslighting. Gaslighting is saying you there's something wrong with you. You have um, you must have some sort of memory problem or some other psychiatric issue. You need help. The mistake would be, I don't have those things. I saw a therapist. They said, there's nothing wrong with me. And they're like, well, of course. The th and then you get in this back and forth, right? When they say something like that, honestly, the cleaner play is, okay. You know, you just sort of play into their madness and say, sure, got it, great. And that's the not defending. And, and the other mistake alongside that people make is they explain themselves. They're like, listen, if you hear my point of view, this will make sense to you. No, it won't they're not listening. I can't explain this to survivors enough. They're not listening. So when you try to explain something, like I want them to understand my point of view, they don't care. They want to dominate you. They don't want to understand you. There's a difference, right? Domination is just boom. Understanding is collaborative. Like if a person says, I really want to understand your point of view, then explain, but they don't. And when you start explaining, thinking that, Maybe they'll behave differently. Another mistake. The explaining, I think one should never do. I don't think it's ever a good idea. The defending, I understand. Some people say, I feel like I'm a doormat if I don't defend myself. The explaining is, I just think it's off the table. And I think that once you know what you're dealing with, mm -hmm. it's to shut the explain off. And all of this, and maybe the, the, we almost need to start with the don't engage. The don't engage is you, if, if you know, if a person's ever been through a deposition, they kind of know what I'm talking about. You don't get, give long meandering answers. You literally answer the questions, yes, no, or as briefly as possible. That's what you'll always be instructed to do by an attorney. Keep it tight. Silence is almost your friend in some ways, just like keeping it tight, because really when you're being deposed by opposing counsel, they're trying to trip you up, right? That's, that's the bottom line. And if you can view it that way, the narcissistic person in essence is trying to trip you up. So less is more. And then not engaging is basically that you don't initiate new conversations with them. You don't talk about yourself. You don't share anything about yourself. So it really becomes, I always say, I said to someone once, I said, having any form of relationship with a narcissist is like forever having to listen to an annoying podcast <laughs> because they're not listening to you. Obviously a podcast you're listening to, they're not listening to you. And there's just yammer, yammer, yammer. If you ever listen to a pod, pod, podcast, you're like, what is this person? Like, this is, I cannot get this five minutes back, right? <laughs> so that's what it is. If they're going to just talk about what they want to talk about in some whatever strange way they want to talk about it. And you're just listening. And, and in fact, and I'm, I'll give this technique after I get to the last the P, the don't personalize, of ways to cope with it. Because the last P is don't personalize. Mm -hmm. And people say, how can I not personalize? This feels personal. They would be doing this to anyone in your position. This isn't about you. It's not you. Yes. It's really anyone who's in the unfortunate position of having to work with, listen to, be in a relationship with, be in a family with, this person would be going through what you're going through. They're not targeting you as a human being. They don't know you well enough to target you at this point. They just want what they want. But so, are they not part, partly uh, targeting temperament and characteristics? They want to draw you 
into a position of weakness, right? So one of the most classic narcissistic plays is, so they say something to you and you're like, no, 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 no. You didn't hear that right. Let me explain my part. And you're like, la, 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 explain, 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 explain. And then they're like, yeah, no, you never said that. And you're like, how can you tell me I never said that? I'm getting my phone. And you're like, you know, you're just spinning, okay? But they're calm. They're like this. They're like, yeah, I don't have any recollection, but you you seem a little crazy bit right now. Like, what's what's this? And you're like, I'm not crazy. You're making me crazy. The narcissist is so happy when that's happening because they look calm, cool, collected. You look insane. Okay. And that reinforces that rhetoric of they're great, you're not. They're calm and well put together. You're dysregulated and out of your mind. They love that juxtaposition. The problem with that is that when it keeps happening, the person who's like losing themselves and trying to explain actually does start to believe that they're crazy because they're like, this person makes me crazy. And I'm like, mm. you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're engaging with someone you shouldn't be engaging with. That's really the issue. So that's another thing to keep in mind. But so they would be doing this to anyone. But the personalization is we think this is specifically they're out to get us. They're really not. They just want their they want their power. They want their supply. Right. When they're doing this, when they're trying to draw someone into conflict, when they're gaslighting, when they're lying, all these things, you know, to be true, you want to shut it down. Right. But there's no point in sharing with them. I always tell people, they're showing you who they are. Old school Maya Angelou. Mm. Believe them. Okay, believe them through their actions. This is what you're dealing with. And so when people get really good at this, in fact, you know, we, you and I have a common friend in Mel Robbins, right? And I was just on Mel's podcast talking about this and was in the curriculum of my healing program just this last month. I talk about this idea of soul distancing, which is when you're with them and they're trying to draw you out and you're giving your simple, not cold, like, yeah, mm-hmm, yep, nope, got that, sure, I hear that. Like you're giving, like you're, you're engaged, you're listening to them, but they may ask you, how was your day? You've won when you can say things like, yeah, no, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not, not a lot was going on. You're definitely not going to tell them how you got into it with your boss or you were hurt by a colleague or you learned that your friend is sick or you, you're frustrated with your mother you're, or, or even that you got an award at work. You're not telling them any of that because they're either going to be not supportive, blame you, gaslight you or ignore you. So you're not, you're not, when they ask you those questions, like how's your day? Like, yeah, you know, a day, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So you've answered the question but they're not your go-to with that stuff anymore. That right there can turn some of the volume down. The problem is we all keep engaging with them like there's a point to it. And there's really, really not. I always view them as the way they've turned us into objects, turn that right back at them, okay? So if I have to interact with a narcissistic person because of work, for family reasons, for any other reasons, I prepare myself to go into that situation. I know what I'm dealing with. I, I, try, I know I want to get out of there as quickly as I can, right? And whatever, you know, so I'll interact with them in a very, very meager sort of a way. If it's a work thing, I'm like, to figure out what is it I need from this person? And I'm going to cut to the chase and get that thing, whatever it is, or give them what they need. And no small talk, we're done. Mm -hmm. I'm out. And so, 
And think of all the time you save, not being made to feel like you're out of your mind. But this can this can work. This can work in close relationships too. Is you're just not t- you're not taking their bait anymore. That's what all of this looks like. Is that in those moments when they're going for you, you ground. I always tell people both feet on the ground. It's gonna help you. It's like a literal thing you can draw into. Both feet on the ground. You're very intentionally breathing. You could do like four, seven, eight breathing, four in, seven hold, eight exhale. You're paying attention to your breath. And if it's going on for a while and there isn't much you can do about it, I often say to people, take in your surroundings. So if I was looking here, I'd say there's a white plant in the corner and I'm describing these things to myself because is what's coming out of their mouth. And that way I'm not engaging with them. But anything, it also helps you kind of ground and sort of calm your nervous system down at those times. But it will take a toll on you. And I always tell people to engage, again, get into this in the book, this is what I call the preparing and the releasing the narcissistic interaction. When you know you're going to have to deal with a toxic mother, when you know you're going to have to talk to the toxic co-parent, whatever it may be, the, the narcissistic colleague, the meeting with all of them, you prepare. It might even only be five minutes, but give yourself a minute alone. It might be in a bathroom stall. It might be in your car. But you breathe in. You don't go in there unprepared. You wouldn't do anything else. You pack a suitcase for a trip. It's almost (laughs) like packing a suitcase, right? And you breathe and you're like, okay, I'm I'm not going to go deep. I am not going to engage. I'm very clear what I'm hoping for here. You have your meeting. They're going to do something that's problematic, I'm sure. And when it's done... Don't think you can just jump into your day. Give yourself a few minutes for release. If it was a particularly toxic encounter, go do what you need to do to bring your nervous system back to baseline. That might be a nap. It could be a shower. It could be a walk. It could be a run. It could be sitting under a tree, walking your dog, talking to a friend, calling your shrink, painting a picture, whatever is your thing, build that into the back end. So if you know you have a day of meetings and you have any control over your schedule and you know two o'clock is the toxic meeting, don't book a three. Book a four and say between three and four, whatever. And you might be ready. Maybe the meeting isn't that bad. You're like, great. I just have an hour in my day to do other stuff. But I think we don't recognize how much this takes a toll on us. And since we can't always get out of these relationships, it's an opportunity for us to take care of ourselves despite not being able to walk away from all these relationships. That was a very long answer to your question, though. No, that was genius. And even like the timing of everything was giving yourself grace, understanding who you're about to be with and then knowing what that knock-on effect is going to be. I think it's super strong Mm -hmm. instead of just then diving into something and then ignoring the emotion or the thing that you've just Mm -hmm. been through. How would you even do that if it was someone you were living living with. So it gets harder there, right? And I think that the challenge there, the game changes a bit because people stay in narcissistic relationships for a variety of reasons. In the intimate relationship sphere, there's reasons, the practical, the cultural, children, um, fear, uh, love. Identity. Identity. I'm a spouse. I'm part of a family all of those things, right? But hope, some people still have not fully gotten a radical acceptance. They think maybe, maybe, maybe. But let's even take away factors like hope and even love out of there. But the stuff you're talking about, all the stuff we just practical stuff, not everyone can go. And I think that that's very important for people to understand. That doesn't mean all is lost. You can still, you can still pull back a little because If you go with the don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, don't personalize, 
sadly, yeah, your topics are the weather, who got nominated for what award, they're building a new movie theater in the town, they're repaving the street. Yeah, that filler conversation is like most news. of what it is. It's, it's, yeah, what they say, new sports weather. That's about all you can mm-hmm. talk about. And even these days, you can't talk about the news. But what a lot of survivors have said to me is they're like, when I really laid it to them that way, and they said, I don't like this. I said, what part of it don't you like? And they said, that's not a relationship. I said, this has never been a relationship. You've been telling yourself something to make it feel like a relationship, but this is a person who's been disrespecting you for years or decades. We're just being honest about it now. And you're not, and engaging with them is not good for you. So this is a way to disengage. But that recognition that really it is weather, it is the fence across the street, it is the squirrel in the backyard, that that's all you got, is a lot of grief comes out of that. And the reality of it, because people will say, yeah, once I sort of switch the tactic to over there, we're not doing as much, but I have to say, Lisa, someone in my healing program said this, and it struck me so hard, had said how her husband, so she was doing all this, and her husband said, I'm not interested in being in a civil relationship. That fool, I almost cursed, that fool said that out loud. I was like, are you, he literally, like when she had him in position, when she did all the things, she didn't defend, she didn't engage, she didn't explain, she didn't personalize. And he's like, I'm not interested in this. Like he's basically saying, I only want a relationship where I can degrade and humiliate and and crush you like a bug. What this does, you strangely, you would think like going at someone like, you, you need to stop this and this is what you did and blah, blah, blah. Like we think that's what holding a person's feet to the fire is. In a narcissistic relationship, it's pulling away all the supply and seeing what they do. And in this case, it's not getting into it with them. But the thing you've got to remember is if you disengage from a narcissistic person this much, there is a possibility they'll leave. And for folks with abandonment fears, mm-hmm. for folks with fear of uh, their of a relationship ending, of a divorce, all those things, that makes them nervous and I understand that. And that's the risk of this. If you disengage enough, not always, but in some cases, the narcissistic person may say, this is this, I'm done. This is not working for me anymore. And that can really build up that sense of self-doubt. Well, this happened because I disengage. So I sometimes tell people, again, I call it this in the book, I call it go into the tiger's cage. I say, go into the tiger's cage. And they said, what do you mean by that? I said, imagine a cage and in that's a big cage and in the cage is a cat. And you're like, is that a cat or is that a tiger, right? If it's a cat, then it's this little sweet kitty and you're going to go pet it and it's going to be cute and you're going to snuggle with it and that's that. If it's a tiger, it's going to tear you apart. So I tell clients, you're not sure of this yet, are you? Go in there, try it. Go tell, tell them something you need. Ask for something you need. Tell them you want to talk about something and tell, tell me how that works out for you. Because if it's a tiger, if this is indeed a narcissistic person, they're going to have a go at you. If this is a, actually a person who is not narcissistic, you guys might have just had a, a rough go, but you actually do express a need or want to talk to them and they're, they're open to it, it might just be a cat. But you're only going to know if you go in the cage. And so instead of, I would never tell a client, this person's narcissistic, don't even try. I'd say, you need to try this and keep going in that cage until you're sure. You're going to get torn apart in the process but that might be the only way you are sure. So some people will keep going in the cage and then 
Lisa, in almost all of these relationships, there's a penny drop moment. There is a moment where you can never unsee it again. And it could be anything. It could be big things, like you find them in bed with your sister. It could be tiny things, like you ask them to, I don't know, you, you ask them to do the tiniest little favor for your child and they, they're, they're, they, they still wouldn't do it. Like it was the littlest thing and it would have meant all the difference to someone that mattered and they wouldn't do it. So again, it could be anything, but there's a moment. And when that moment comes, and sometimes that moment comes because you keep going in the tiger's cage, because something that happens in these relationships mm-hmm. is that if you don't push the system, like if you keep going along, if you keep justifying, You can trick yourself into thinking that this is a healthy relationship, even though you're feeling sick inside. But once you do things like don't play their ground game anymore, keep going in the tiger's cage, make a need known, because that's what people do. They're like, they don't make their needs known. It's a classic characteristic of trauma bonding. They don't share what they need with the narcissist because they know what's going to come. So you know how they can avoid seeing what's going to come? Never sharing a need. And so they never share their needs. And people in these relationships get really good at doing everything for themselves and doing everything that the narcissistic person wants, right? But when they start going into the tiger's cage and testing out the water, seeing what this is, seeing what's really behind the bars of that cage, they might need to see that a few times. And once they see it a few times, they'll say, oh boy, this is not healthy. Now, if they decide to stay, the work, can can they do these things? Sure. I mean, the conversations are much more impoverished. Um, you, I tell people that you might have to find a way to skate between the good days, like the bad days are the bad days, but every so often there might be a fun dinner or a silly family game night. And you, you view that as the break in the weather that it is, you know, it's like living in a place that's always cold and stormy and every so often there's a sunny day and everyone goes out and sits outside and takes pictures, but you know, the next day it's going to rain again. It's a tough way to live. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply.
As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash lisa. Oh God, yeah, the, the analogy in your book really hit me when I read that because it's such a strong way of thinking about it. Like if you can take that person that maybe they did the one nice thing that you're holding on to that makes them seem somewhat human and you turn it into the analogy of the cat, it made me realize like, oh, he didn't bite my head off and I'm still alive today. It's like, well, you know, it's like every time you walk into the cage, you're risking it. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, sadly, sometimes people are risking their lives. And so thinking about that analogy really hit me well. Mm -hmm. And then your your breakdown of like, well, if you keep going into that cage, what that long-term mm -hmm. effect's going to be. Um, and um, did you, uh, was it Sick Freedom Roy in Vegas? Those, um, uh, the... the Lion taming. Yes, people. they're like lion taming and they had all these lions and they had all these tigers and they were known. And then one day on stage, a tiger decides to maul him. That's right. That's because that's just, what tigers do. That's what made me think. It's like you you have a a notion or a thing like, oh no, but they care about me. I've brought them up. I've been with them for a long time. X, Y, and Z. But you can't change you know, a tiger's stripes or whatever the phrase is. Well, you know, is. I mean, it's a, the parable I use in the book is the scorpion and the swan, yes, right? Yes, yes. You know, is it, which is that classical myth, which is there's a scorpion on the bank of a river. The scorpion wants to get to the other side of the river, but needs another creature to take it across. And everybody, the turtles, the frogs, everyone's like, um, we're not taking you, you fool. You're going to sting us? Oh, hell no. But then the swan comes by and, and even the ducks are saying no. And the scorpion says, you know what? I can see you're so elegant. You're so beautiful. You're so much smarter than all these other river creatures. Would you please take me across? And even the swan says like, I don't know. Like, how do I know I won't sting you? And, and the scorpion said, why would I sting you? You're my way of getting to the other side. You know, and honestly, like, like I said, you're, you're smarter than all these other creatures. Anyhow, the swan feeling that the, Scorpion got her or got him because this boy swan is a beautiful swan. The swans thinking that the scorpion got him says, sure, come on. You're right. Why would you bite me? I'm taking you to the other side. And they get to the other side of the river and they're having a nice little chat and it's time to jump off to the other bank and the scorpion stings the swan. And the swan in agony says, why? Why did you do it? And the scorpion said, I'm a scorpion. It's what we do. And I said in that vignette, 
the damn scorpion has more insight than the narcissist because at least the scorpion knows he's like that's what i do i stink like that's you know and i'm gonna tell you what i need to do to get what i need to tell you to get what i need but i'm gonna sting you and so that that piece of it is that at least the scorpion would tell you that even the nar the narcissist wouldn't do that but they'll say whatever they need to say to get you to do what they want you to do and then they will sting you that's inevitable and no scorpion they're scor you can't scorpion's not a pet so seeing a narcissist for who they are yeah. is the first key to them recognizing how you maneuver, how they're going to in, uh, act mm -hmm. with you. So there's no surprise that you can potentially defend. But there is always, but that's, this is so much easier said than done, right? Because you're in love with this person or this is your parent or this is your sibling or this is your friend of 30 years, right? In fact, and don't underestimate this friendship piece. People will say, we've been through everything together. This is my college roommate or this is my friend in high school. And we did, we were in each other's weddings and I didn't know, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand it. And then I read about this narcissism stuff and it was my, you know, it was their, one of their best friends. And they that was its own loss. So again, I, I say friend because it it's a thing. It can really, really hurt. Mm. But because these people, we have such rich histories with them that when we finally really get the understanding of, oh, okay, this is a pattern. It's consistent. You sketch it out. You're like, this is, this is clearly what's happening. It's not as simple as a maneuver out. Now it's grief. I'm, I'm really, in essence, you may not be physically losing them, but it's that sense of, I've lost hope. I've kind of lost that sense of this could ever get better. Um, I've lost what I've built this up to be in my head. I've lost the narrative. All of that gets lost once you see this clear. So you only have, you have one of two choices, right? Choice one is to live in the delusion and choice two is to see it clearly. Both choices carry pain. That hit me hard. So if both choices carry pain, what would need to be true for you to seek the path that eases the pain long-term? I think that's going to be different for everyone, Lisa. And I think that that can shift over time. For some people, they might say, our kids are small. And I can't imagine 50% of the time not being with my four-year-old child. Mm. So some people will say, I have to find out, figure out a way to gut this out for five years, 10 years, whatever. So some people, it, then, and as the child gets older, they'll say, okay, I, this kid, now the child's at an age where they can make decisions about where they want to live. Or some people wait until the day their kids turn 18. And like, at least I'm not going to fight about that piece of this in court. We might fight about everything else, but not that. So that situation can matter. It's like th those things will change over time, which pain is worse. Mm. Sometimes it's an accumulation. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So all of a sudden, the person's behavior is showing up in a context into like, it, it's very clear what it is. And you might find yourself getting disgusted by it and saying, I can't do this anymore, right? Because you're not, if you're not, if you're not practicing denial, then you're, and you're fully like allowing yourself or you have seen it. And again, you can't unsee it. 
that just might accumulate. You know, a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Yanya Lalit, she calls it breaking the shelf. You put enough stuff on something, it's going to break. So you get enough of this narcissistic stuff, you're registering that way, the shelf will ultimately break. And it does. And then the person will say, I can't, I can't engage with this person as much anymore. And it's not all or nothing, Lisa, either. What my, with families, this is easier to understand. Let's say someone is very aware now that they're father and their brother are deeply narcissistic and that every interaction with these people are to is toxic and it's negatively harmed their childhood and all of that, but embedded still in their family system as a mother they're fond of or cousins they're fond of or other extended family. What may end up happening is a person might say, I'm not coming home for some family dinner nonsense, but I'm going to make efforts to maybe create a time that I carve out with my mother and my sister and we go on a vacation. Like people might do the workarounds or they'll show up to the family event but not stay with the family or they'll show up for only half of it. They'll 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 figure out what they need to do to keep maintain some of the relationships or not others. So that's what I'm saying is they'll they'll just sort of have the kind of superficial interaction while the more difficult people are around and have the deeper ones with the healthier ones. But they'll just, they'll be aware of what it is that they're dealing with, if that makes sense. In an intimate partnership, it's harder. It's harder because over time, a lot of contempt can build up. Mm -hmm. But if a person knows what they're dealing with, a lot of times, and the, one of the key, key factors to healing is having social support. And I'll tell folks, whatever that looks like, whether if you have a job it's it's and you have decent colleagues, building up friendships there. It might be if you have kids um, and you're involved in the school, building up friendships there. But having, and this doesn't have to be 20 people one or two good supports who can be there, who you can trust. And not, not that they're your shrinks, but they're just people to do things with, people to share things with, who can hear things and mirror them back and you can support them and you they can support you. You can be there for each other. That sometimes gives people enough to get have the stamina to get through to a certain point. P meaning and purpose are huge in this, is that if there's something that calls you, that compels you, whether it's work, whether it's a creative pursuit, whether it's a spiritual draw, whatever it is, that that might be enough to fill those holes. But what you can hear what I'm saying, Lisa, is there's grief here. It's the people recognizing once they see that their relationship is indeed a very invalidating, hollow, narcissistic relationship, they're giving up on a love story. And they're going to have to find that within themselves and, and their life doesn't go the way others do. And it can be painful to watch other people's lives. They're growing old with someone or they're somebody who cares for them and is attentive to them. There can be a lot of grief in this process. This healing process is not easy. And I assume that's why they try to attack your meaning, your purpose, and then the people you surround yourself with, um, narcissists in a relationship because those are the things you have to hold on to in order to get through. Well, I think it's not even that it's, they don't think there's anything to get through. The narcissistic person no, thinks they're No, they're trying great. to target you right, because they know that having a friend around you, having meaning and purpose in your life is what's going to give you the strength. It's going to give you and, and power. And power, They don't yeah, want yeah, you to yeah, have yeah, power, yeah. right? So if you have friends around you who are saying, you're so great, we so believe in you, they don't want those friends around mm -hmm. because that's making you strong and that's taking that, that teeter-totter, that seesaw, and making it balance. They don't want that. They always want their side up. So they will isolate people from those kinds of relationships, or they'll speak badly about them or devalue them. So no, they, they don't want you to have, they'll, they'll diminish the things that gives you meaning. If you say, 
oh, I'm volunteering in this new group and we're doing all these cool things in the community. Oh, that's such a waste of your time. You're doing that for free. That's silly. These things are never going to happen again. Otherwise you'd get power from that. And they don't want you to be powered. The other thing to keep in mind too, with this power dynamic is that the narcissistic person views other people as an object. Okay. So in psychology and mental health and therapy, we talk about subjects and objects, right? An object is it's what it sounds like, a thing, a convenience, like just like there's a cup or there's a coffee maker. These things serve a function. And when we need them, we're happy about them, but we don't think of, think about them or interact with them like they're living, breathing things. We don't. I don't care if that coffee cup had a good day kind of thing, right? That's how narcissistic people treat people. We are conveniences to them. But when I need the coffee cup, I might take it in my hand. I might even embrace it and hold it. Might seem like I really cherish this coffee cup because right now this cup has what I want in it. So I'm really not I'm looking at it. I'm like, hmm, hmm. I love you, cup, right? And I have nothing to, I have no need for you anymore, cup. So peace, bye, bye, cup. Mm-hmm. That's fine for cup. Imagine you're a person. So it's like, you're the best when you're doing whatever it is they need you to do. But when that function is done, they've put you back in the drawer. And that's a terrible feeling. You exist to serve their needs. That's the dynamic here. You serve their needs, you uphold them, you give them supply, you allow them to feel powerful. That's the narcissistic relationship. And when people recognize that they were really just serving a convenience, they were serving a purpose that's a terrible, terrible feeling. And then just to add to that analogy, because I freaking love it, is that then if you're chipped or broken, they're just going to discard you. They're going to discard you. Yes. If you stop working, if you, if the toaster stops making toast, we throw the toaster out. So if you're no longer able to do the thing, and this takes us to this point, which again, we, we sort of have talked about in other episodes, which is one of the greatest moments of devastation that can happen in a narcissistic relationship is when a person gets sick especially people who are growing old with narcissistic people, because they'll say, oh, I don't want to leave this relationship because I'm getting older and I might need support when I get, you know, I mean, it's hard to grow old alone and someone else in the house and whatever the reasons are. And the devastation is when that person thinks, well, I have a partner in the house with me. They will care for me. No, they won't. You'll get sick and now you're a problem. As long as you were healthy and cooking or cleaning or helping or whatever the heck it, whatever functions you serve for this person, you don't serve that function anymore. They're not going to be interested in you. And so, and I remember one client telling me how it sickened her that she had a narcissistic partner. She did get quite sick. She was in and out of the hospital. Complained at her. Oh my gosh, this doesn't even seem real. Gaslight her, minimize her health problems, all that. But when he would be in the hospital, when he would make sure he'd visit her on the days everyone else was visiting her. And he was the most attentive person. Like, babe, do you want a pillow under your knees? Like, babe, can I get you something else? You want me to go ask the nurse? And she said it was horrifying because by and large, she was really being left to be, again, minimized and devalued. But what more often is the case is that people get sick and the narcissistic person doesn't help at all. And they're working under the illusion I have a partner, I have help. So they didn't set up nurses or carers or drivers or any of that. So they're scrambling. And I'd say to anyone in a narcissistic relationship, if you're going to stick it out, then you do what feels right to you. 
but you better have a plan B in place for when you get sick. Because I can promise you one thing, this person ain't changing your adult diapers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do a plan B and the narcissist finds out, are they going to get more mad with you that you've got a plan? Like, how does that like almost play out? They will probably play victim because we haven't even talked enough about that. It's like how much the narcissistic person will like play victim. Like, you've never believed in me. You've never, you know, because now what you've done is you've empowered yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're sick, it's an interesting reversal for them too, because now they're really in power. But the problem is they're really in power because you're sick, but now you need things from them and they don't want to do them. So it's very frustrating. So like if, if it was a wealthy narcissist, they would just hire people to care for you. But most people don't have those means, right? They have right. to pitch in and they don't want to do that. They don't want to do be take care of those things. Narcissistic people will get a little bit petty, you know, like, oh, okay, well, I guess you got it all figured out. You have no use for me. And they'll sound a little bit passive aggressive and victim-y. Like, oh, I guess there's no point in me being around then, I guess. Well, you've got it all figured out, don't you? Because you don't need me. And and so, and now many people will find themselves, they felt they were now in the position that they had to go rescue the narcissistic person. Oh. No, 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 no. I know you're helpful. I just don't want to be a problem. Like, no, no. I mean, you've got all these rides set up, but the minute you cancel all those rides, they won't provide them for you. Ooh. I'd say hold on to your plan B and say, oh, this is I just feel more comfortable with this. Oh God, the moment you have to go and rescue the narcissist. When you're on your worst day. Yeah. Oh. Couldn't even imagine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so you brought it up. Let's talk about then when uh, narcissists act like the victim and they start whining. What does that look like? And then as the person receiving it, how can we respond mm-hmm. in order to, you know, hopefully stand up for ourselves or at least protect ourselves? They really believe they're the victim. They Narcissistic people not only are preoccupied with their own sense of suffering and misery and pain, they feel everyone's out to get them. They feel wronged by the world. Um, they feel life is unfair to them. They believe that. This is much more pronounced in vulnerable narcissistic people compared to grandiose narcissistic people. But it's, it's, it's anytime something goes wrong for a narcissistic person, it's woe is me, right? So if they don't, and if they feel as though they've lost any of the power, because again, you go and make your plan B, then you've taken away some of their power. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of woe is me at that point. They're so entitled. Narcissistic people are so entitled that if things don't go their way, then they're a victim versus they don't take responsibility. It often might be the things that they did. That's why things didn't go their way, right? So I'm suffering worse and, and, and no one else is suffering, right? You don't understand how bad this is. And meanwhile, the person next to them has gone through it a hundred times worse, right? So that, that victimhood in a way is sort of like that. It's the entitlement, but it's coming out in this more passive, resentful, sullen way. So still victimhood is entitlement, right? Uh, Basically I'm entitled to not suffer. That's what the entitlement is at that point. But it, it works. 
because people will often feel that they have to scramble to save them because that's our tendency, right? A lot of us are rescuers. People who are empathic and compassionate will want to rescue. And I will tell you when I, you know, I've been doing this long enough that when I see the victimized narcissistic person, I feel no desire to help them. I don't care. I have no problem walking out of a room, but it certainly makes me look like a little bit of a monster, mm-hmm. you know, that like, whoa, that's a little bit cold, isn't it? But and for the early and early when I was doing that, I did feel like a bad person. Like, how could I not be reaching in to help somebody who says they're struggling? But when you understood it, they're always struggling in the context of narcissism. They're only struggling because they didn't get their way. That's not my problem. And, but it wasn't my natural tendency to walk away from somebody who was ostensibly suffering. I had to remind myself that, no, this is performative and this is not my problem. Especially when there's people in the room. If they don't know the context, that would be so hard. It's very hard. And I will tell you, like, I've I've done done it in front of groups. Like, it's not that abrupt, but you'll see I'm tuned out. I'm on my phone. I'm playing Candy Crush. And Alice Romney and I um and then I'll go to the bathroom like I'm like oh there's a vending machine let me check out something over there I have no and everyone's like oh trying to help them and um sometimes people would say take me aside and some people would you know really be casting some shade my way but people who'd know me in these usually it would happen in work settings will say what was that about mm. and i'll say you really going to fall for that victimized nonsense and when i put it in the macro they're like you're right mm. and but you have to be willing to tolerate that sense of being viewed as the cold one sometimes. And that's hard. In the beginning, it was very hard for me too. I did not like that. I didn't like that feeling of being thought that I was sort of the bad one Mm -hmm. because I wasn't going to put up with this whole victim nonsense anymore. I just don't care. It's a lot of disengagement. It's changed me. I mean, Lisa, from a personal perspective, and you'll see this throughout the pages of this book, the the number of narcissistic relationships i just had the bad luck to endure and i don't think it was coincident i think having them in all these different areas and phases of my life made me more likely to stick around in others i don't do it anymore but it's also changed how i go through the world socially i'm much more conservative and restricted in how i um how i spend time with other people i yeah i i think my world has become a lot more narrow as a result so it has changed me So take me through that, let's say one instance, because I'm trying to think of the people listening at home that so desperately wants to do that, Mm -hmm. right? They've they've had the experience, they find themselves in another situation, whether in front of people or not in front of people, and they start to notice that these characteristics Mm -hmm. of the victimhood's Mm -hmm. coming up. If you're a natural empath, if you naturally want to, you know, help yeah. people, your natural inclination is to start speaking up. So number one is, okay, don't say don't a word. Don't say a word. Number two, like, is it pick up your phone and play? Like, actually take me through what that would look like well, because there's such a difference between wanting to do exactly what yeah. you said and, and really wanting to be like you, strong like you and actually doing, doing it. it. So I would say I'd seen, I've been to this movie before kind of thing. Mm. Like this person had done this over and over and over again, right? And it always got us to the same result. Everyone in trying to he- to help the victimized person, they ended up getting their way. It was a very, very skilled manipulation. And the day I realized that no matter what I do, this other person is going to pull out their whole victimized manipulation, and it's always going to go that way. Like, why am I wasting this emotional energy, right? So now I said, I got to pull my psychological energy 
out of this. And so I recognizing did. that it was draining yeah. in the first place yeah. and then extracting yourself. But number two is that the system was never going to change either. It was just recognizing it and that no one else around mm. it wanted to get mm. it. Right? Because it wasn't just one-on-one. This was a whole group of people. So that number three was disengaging. And it was recognizing that my needs were never going to be met in this system. And it was never really going to work properly. So I disengaged, but I showed up because I had to. I was obligated to show up. And I would do other things. I mean, like I said, I mean, as rude as it might sound, sometimes I, when it really got heated and that person was really going on one of their victimized narratives, I would play a game under the table because it would at least just pull my focus because I was getting frustrated and angry. I'd go to the bathroom for a protracted period of time. I'd take a long time walking back and read what was on the bulletin board. Was someone going to stop me from going to the bathroom? But I would just keep taking myself out of that situation. And I was totally disengaged. And, and when people are like, okay, how can we support this idea of such and such? How can we, I wouldn't say a word. I would, and they'd say, Romney, do you have any thoughts? I'd be like, no. And, um, and then the system really got more and more problematic. It kept orienting towards the victimized person. And really then the victimized person was trying to do less and less and less, got away with it, created more workload for everyone else. But Lisa, here's the ultimate punchline is I had to leave the system. Mm-hmm. It was not sustainable. I, I w- And I was able to leave the system, but it took me a very, very long time. Initially, I was not able to leave for a variety of practical reasons. And then I was able to leave. That's why I'm saying these things evolve. Sometimes we can't leave and then we do leave. We find our ways out. Sometimes, you know, that that's it, it can take years, it can take decades. It really depends on what it is. But that for me, it was very much that moment where like nothing I do here is going to make a difference. Nothing. It's a tough moment because we've exhausted ourselves getting ourselves to that moment of nothing I do, nothing I say, nothing. I played by all the rules. I did it all right. So inside myself, I was like, I have exhausted all possibilities. Mm-hmm. And now I'm fine with saying, nope, this is, this is pointless. And so I disengaged, but and and I and nor though the hard part was this person who by now I was disgusted by too. Mm-hmm. See, that's the thing. When the person's doing this whole victimized thing and you're very familiar with what their gambit is, like, nah, this is this is this is a horrible. Everyone else might be falling for this. And it actually made me lose respect for other people in that system too. So mm-hmm. I actually have a couple of other behaviors I'd love to uh, mm-hmm. ask you about and then give us maybe like a little cheat sheet of mm-hmm. what to do in those situations. So um, you have said that a narcissistic behavior, they are often relentless. Mm-hmm. So let's say something, someone's being relentless and they just are like a dog with a freaking mm-hmm. bone. What do you do in those scenarios so that you don't feel like it's coming at you so that you can basically put up those walls and protect yourself? A lot of times it's getting distance between you and your ego because when we stay in the fight, it's often ego, right? Because narcissistic people are what we call, there's a word we use in psychology called perseverative. And to be perseverative means you perseverate. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And they are relentless like that. They will get, there's an obsessive quality to narcissism. That's why they get obsessive about their revenge fantasies. They get obsessive about, I'm going to make this person pay. They get obsessive of, I'm going to get, I'm going to, do business with that person. They get they get laser focused. It's part of the reason many narcissistic people can also be quite successful mm. because they do get obsessive and it, it does feel relentless and they don't let it go. But this can also happen with 
points that they're trying to argue with you on. It could be happy. You'll see people go through this in narcissistic divorces. They will be relentless about certain things. There's no way in hell you are getting this much money. Bah, 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 bah. And they will lose their mind, sometimes even doing illegal things like offshoring money and stuff to make that point, right? They'll, they'll almost like, Hurt, again, what I said about the rewards and consequences I've been talking about, whatever they can do to get that early, that fix of no way are you getting this from me. And that goes to that oppositionality I've talked about with narcissism too. They don't like being told what to do. do. They're obsessive. They're perseverative. They get stuck, again, mm -hmm. even to their detriment. The reason we get in there with them is our own egos. We have pride. We want to win. We want to make our point. And if you can make that break from your ego. It's like my ego wants to have that fight. Like ego, you need to take a nap and I'm out. Like it's because it is ego. There's no point. There's no point in this interaction. So once you do that, you, you recognize once you can leave the pride and ego part out that you're not doing it. Now they are spinning and spinning and spinning. Like they'll be damned if you won't get into this with them. But that's that disagreeableness. They want the conflict. Don't give it to them. Because they will, they, they're better made to fight than you are. They really are. They're scrappy fighters. And, and some people like fighting. And if you like fighting, then go for it. Then that's you. That's not the average survivor. So um, when you say don't, you know, basically take the bait, if they are relentless, would they just eventually wear out and, mm -hmm. and stop then? Is that they'll the wear goal? Out or they'll leave. And that's that abandonment piece. They may say, uh, they'll say, I'm out of here. I'm done with you. Okay. I'm, that That is, in the long run, you will always be better off if you can get out of one of these relationships. And in the long run, you'll always be better off if they're the one to leave. You know, common sort of, if you will, sort of, how do I put it? Um, armchair relationship advice is you want to be the one to leave. Doesn't it feel better if you're the one to leave, right? So you're taking your power it's, back. You're taking your power back. No, you're not. In this case, when the narcissistic person leaves, what you've done is you've taken all your headaches and, and taken them back and like, I don't have to have these anymore. They leave. They have the illusion for, of ego. You've won. Mm -hmm. And even though it's hard to see that initially, I promise you, you have won. When, if, if they go, if because you say, you basically don't say, you don't fall for their relentless baiting. You don't get into the mud with them. You don't fall into the pit of their agreeableness. You don't feel the need to soothe all their victimized nonsense. You don't do any of those things. They're probably going to walk. Hmm. They're going to walk. They're going to find a new supply who will do those things for them. And for a lot of people, it's like, but, but, but what if I'm making a mistake? You're not. And that's hard. That's the hard part is helping people recognize that the best thing just happened to you. And people will. The trauma bond means that they keep sort of looking through the rear view mirror, wondering, was that a mistake? Was that really my person? Maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe they're not this. Maybe they are. You know, it's, it, they, they really are. Most people have suffered for years and years and years. So they feel certain that they were right in seeing this as a toxic relationship. So when it goes, initially there's a, I hope I didn't make a mistake. And then there's a, you, it will get better. That I can tell you after doing this with hundreds of people, thousands of people, it gets better.